0: Hi, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KCCA ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KCCA forward slash Real Vision. Now to the top analysis of today's markets.
1: Lon, welcome to Real Vision. Hey, thanks so much, Ash. It's, uh, It's a pleasure to see you again. Uh, to be with your uh, viewers and your listeners. Really glad to join you today.
2: Well, the day is finally upon us. We wanted to do this conversation for some time now. I'm really excited about it uh, because I'm interested uh, in credit markets, obviously, and I don't know a ton about private credit markets, uh, which is one of your areas of expertise and obviously a significant and rising part of global capital markets right now. Alon, let's get started. Uh, tell a little bit about what you do. One of the reasons I'm so excited to have this conversation with you uh, is that you are literally in the room when these deals get done uh, and have an inside view that most simply do never seem to get.
1: Oh, uh, I'll, I'll give you a little bit about my firm and then me personally, because the, the dynamic is closely related. So our firm is called Remer and Bronstein. It's a, it's a hundred year old um, legal boutique that specializes almost exclusively in finance. So we've got 100 lawyers in in New York and Boston, Miami, Chicago, Newport Beach, California, and pretty much everyone is a finance lawyer. Um, About half of us do real estate finance. I don't do that. Those are the guys who uh, advise people in uh, constructing hotels and office towers, not my specialty. And then the other half of the firm is engaged in commercial finance. And that's my specialty. That's representing banks and non-bank lenders, hedge funds, uh, specialty lenders, factors, supply chain firms, anyone who's providing financing that is not real estate focused. That's what the other half of us do. And and that's my specialty. Um, I've been doing it for 30 years. And um, I, I represent people from the top to the bottom of the debt stack. And what do we mean by the debt stack? Uh, so I represent people who are doing billion dollar lev- Levfin deals at the, at the top of the, of the debt market, uh, deals that are widely syndicated, uh, that might or, or might not be packaged or sold to the secondary market. And I also represent uh, hedge funds and, and non-bank lenders uh, structuring smaller Uh, $100 million, $150 million revolving credit lines, term loan facilities, etc., so that people can run their businesses, um, both uh, uh, working capital revolving lines and term loans. And as I say, I've been doing it for about 30 years, um, and it's industry agnostic, what we do. So the borrowers uh, in these credit facilities, where we represent lenders, uh, they might be in retailing, oil and gas, uh, technology and life sciences, um, e- e- literally any industry. And so what what uh, Ash and I were thinking was, I have a real unique visibility on a broad uh, uh, scope of lending activity. And hopefully that that gives me the opportunity to give some perspective to the listeners and viewers about what I think is going on uh, in the lending world right now. And and before we get too deep, I just want to say that my opinions are my own opinions. So they're not necessarily those of my firm, uh, uh, my, my fellow partners here at the firm, or, or any of our clients for that matter.
2: Yeah, You know you said something that was really interesting on this idea that you're industry agnostic which makes sense uh, because we're talking about a globally fungible pool of funds uh, in the capital markets. Let's start out with the basics. Talk a little bit about the nature of the capital stack. Uh, obviously there are a lot of different moving parts here. There are a lot of different options in terms of the ways that businesses uh, can fun- finance their ongoing operations. Uh, let's start there before we get into the bigger macro discussion about the size of this market uh, which I think is going to be very interesting to investors as well
1: okay now that that's that's a good thought ash to to sort of level set you know i have my own unique perspective about how these markets operate how they exist relative to other markets uh, it's really an understanding of 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 business in a capitalist uh, client uh, environment and so the the way i see it you know, and, and maybe this is a little bit of an oversimplification for your sophisticated audience, so uh, I'll ask them and you to in, indulge me a little bit. But, you know, if you're a partnership or, a, or an LLP or, or, or whatever kind of entity you are, um, you know, whether you're treading water or you're expanding very rapidly, you, you need liquidity, you, you need working capital to go about your business. Um, you need to pay your employees, you need to rent your real property, you need to buy inventory, you need to engage in R&D and so forth Buy machinery and equipment. So, so how do you do that? Um, again, at the risk of oversimplifying, I I really think there are only three ways that this goes down as a practical matter. So this this is Lon Singer's short abridged version of, of how I see the world of, of, uh, of liquidity and business operations. So at the high, high end, You've got the businesses that cash flow. What does that mean? You've got a handful of businesses, a tiny percentage of enterprise where they, they throw off so much cash so regularly without any peaks or valleys, without any real challenges, so much EBITDA that they have all the ability in the world to conduct their business, grow their business, do R and D do acquisitions, do anything they want to do just on the basis of the money that they're cash flowing. So who are these businesses? You know, these are the Microsofts and the apples of the world. These are a fraction of business enterprises and they're notable and they really don't need anything from anybody. They just need to go about their commercial growth model. All right. The, the second category of three is, is the entity that avails itself of equity. And this, this covers a broad range. This is the startup that finds some angel investors, um, the startup that uh, sells a piece to private equity, uh, the guy who goes on Shark Tank and gives Mr. Wonderful 25% of the company. You know, if you're willing to give away some of your business, you can get in cash for selling equity. That's a huge market. It's, It's NASDAQ. It's the New York Stock Exchange. It's not my specialty. My specialty is the third category, and that's debt, public and private debt borrowing money from third parties. And I would submit to you that the overwhelming majority of entities in America and globally, but I practice here, maintains one or more credit facilities with banks or non-bank lenders. And the, the, the way they operate is some of them run their entire cash flow through a revolving credit facility. So it's, it's the basis uh, of, of all cash that they use. and and they flow it through, they recirculate it, they redraw it, they repay it. It, It's a little bit like your personal credit card. That's how they run their business. There are other businesses that might have credit lines for specific purposes. Maybe they have a term loan facility that lets them buy machinery and equipment or real property, or do joint ventures once in a while. So um, there are even uh, a significant percentage of entities that just want to demonstrate that they are so stable financially that they can enter into one of these credit facilities with some kind of a lender and they have dry powder. They have rainy day liquidity if ever they need it. And that's a significant business in its its own right.
2: Yeah. And this is where things get interesting because obviously there's the flip side of that, which is there are investors uh, who have money that they want to send off to summer camp and get a return back on that. Uh, and this is where, uh, things get interesting. Let's talk about the size of that market, uh, the lending market, the debt market that is not, uh, moderated through, uh, commercial lenders, through revolving lines of credit, but rather, uh, through facilities, uh, be they loans, bonds, uh, and private credit. I mean, there's just a whole menu of options here, uh, that we get to talk about today.
1: Yeah, indeed there are. And the takeaway is that we've seen, you, you don't, you don't need me here to tell you this we've seen a tightening in credit. Um, I know your producer, Mario, has a slide, uh, the first one perhaps for our viewers, um, that has a pronouncement from the Fed in late July of this year. That's it right there. Thank you. In which they observed that the credit markets are all tightening. Again, you don't need me for that, but there are nuances that we're going to explore together that are valuable for all of us. Um, What does it mean when the credit markets tighten? Yes, it's hard, harder for consumers to, to borrow money, but it's also harder for businesses to borrow money. And when this happens, covenants are tightened. So businesses need to operate within narrower constraints. The flexibility that lenders, both banks and non-bank lenders are willing to afford their customers gets narrowed. What does that mean? So, you know, every credit facility has negative covenants. It says, listen, don't, don't incur more debt beyond this limit. Uh, unless you come to me for guidance, uh, the, the lender, D- don't take on more liens, unless we've talked about it and we think it works for your business. D- don't enter into a joint venture or a new line of business, unless we confer with you and we think it's a creative and it makes sense for your business. So all of these constraints become narrower and more carefully enforced in an environment where underwriting is tightened. So right. um, businesses are finding it harder to borrow. And, and if you look at the next slide, um, you're going to see that there is at the moment, both a declining leveraged and non-leveraged syndicated loan volume. We're really looking at the last five bars on, on the two lines of the graph below. I think I stole this from Bloomberg. And, but it's a, it's a widely reported fact that there is less lending going on, both regulated and non-regulated lending.
0: Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
2: let me just jump in here really quick because this is where things get incredibly interesting so we talk about on real vision all the time the macro aspect of this obviously we know we're in a rising rate environment tightening credit conditions etc etc but where the conversation gets really interesting and your expertise and what i'm most excited to talk about uh, is the interface of the macro with the micro what's actually happening on the ground uh, and how it impacts investors and credit markets more generally. So let's bring that chart back up Mario that we were just looking at Uh, Juan, talk about talking about the menu of potential debt options uh, that companies use to finance their ongoing operations. You have two broad categories here uh, non syndicated loans and syndicated loans. Let's just start out by defining those two categories and talk a little bit about how they function in the marketplace. Who gets them? uh, What are the options? What are the alternatives? uh, And how do they uh, influence the
1: flow of credit in markets? Absolutely. So the, the, the syndicated loan simply put is, is one that is not fully and, and solely and exclusively underwritten by the lead, a lead lender. It is made available in part to other lenders. Now these could be club loans. These could be widely syndicated loans. So, so I pay for billion dollar deals where one of the three or four biggest money center banks is the agent both administrative and collateral agent, and then it syndicates the loan within the banking community. So what does that mean? It invites its fellow money market, uh, you know, major banks to buy in pieces of the facility, 50 million, 100 million. Why does it do this? It's just like an insurance company. It's It's hiving off risk, sharing risk with other lenders in the marketplace. Those lenders in turn will do likewise in their large credit facilities and the same guy who sold 100 million last week will buy 100 million next week so that they're sort of spreading the risk around in the marketplace. Those are the syndicated loans. It tends to be larger loans that are syndicated because the underwriting for the particular borrower in question was done on the basis of, hey, we're willing to hold 100 million of this billion dollar loan, but we're not willing to hold more of that. Our commitment's a hundred and we're going to act as syndication agent and we're going to get the the other $900 million sold and then we're going to close.
2: So, so looking at this first chart, before we move on to the next one, one of the things that's visually striking uh, is how rapidly we see the non syndicated loan volume decline. I mean, this is a pretty
1: striking chart uh, when we look at that visually what's going on there. Well, what that means is the guy who does the small loan, he he is more nervous about holding on to all the risk associated with any given loan than the guys who do the larger uh, uh, loans, again, where risk is hived off and shared. So if you're doing a $30 million loan, and you're holding the whole thing, you're a smaller lender, you've got 100% of the risk associated with that credit facility. And so your willingness to lend your comfort level with how many borrowers that there are out there in your sweet spot is dramatically diminished. And maybe you're sitting on the sidelines a little bit until you think the lending environment comports with uh, the, the, the criteria that you think are appropriate for you right now. So that's what's happening. The guy who can't share risk, he's willing to take less risk.
2: Yeah, and the other fascinating point is when you look at the chart on the bottom, you see that the folks who can syndicate risk doing exactly that. Now, there's been some uh, a bit of a decline from H1 2021, but you see this huge jump. If you're not looking at this, if you're just listening to the podcast, this huge bump up on the syndicated loan volume uh, in basically the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, uh, which seems to imply exactly what you were talking about, this desire to share risk if you are one of the large shops that's able to syndicate,
1: distribute this uh, debt. Right. And the interesting thing that I would point out is don't assume that all the syndicated lenders that are reflected in that chart are the big banks because they're not, there are enormous hedge funds and other, other uh, private investor groups that are, that are making enormous loans and that are syndicating their loans among one another and even to the banks. Money center banks, regional banks, other banks. So those guys are really the guys in the sweet spot right now. And, and let me explain what I'm thinking in that regard. Yeah. So um, you know, post post Silicon Valley Bank, and I have a chart for this. Uh, maybe you can bring that one up next. You'll see that um, you had you had the catastrophe with SVB, with Signature, with Republic people got nervous about the bank space generally. And what does that mean? A lot of people who had their money at smaller banks said, you know, I I, I know it's FDIC insured to $250,000, but I'm a corporation. I have, I have tens of millions of dollars at the bank. Where should my money be? Maybe it should only be at a gigantic money center too big to fail bank, because we know the government's government's always going to protect my money in that setting. And So what happened? We saw enormous post Silicon Valley bank deposits as reflected in the attached um, promptly after uh, the the, the catastrophe with SVB and and, and Republican signature. So you would think, okay, the money center banks, the B of A's, the Wells Fargo's, the JP Morgan Chase's, they, they took in additional billions. So they must be eager as can be to lend. They're throwing lots more Uh, um, uh, lending money out the door, aren't they? Well, no, the answer is they're not. They're, They're hunkering down with all that additional liquidity. They're shoring up their stability. They're preparing to ride out any difficulties. They don't want government intervention again. Their memories are pretty good with respect to 2008. And so they, in fact, are not the guys who are doing the serious aggressive lending right now. So who is? It's the non-bank lenders. And I'll tell you why. So we talked a little bit earlier in the conversation about the fact that credit criteria have grown tighter. And uh, Ash pointed out, and we all know it, interest rates have gone up. So what does that mean? That means the private lender is lending with, with tighter criteria, right. It's a less fast than loose lending environment. And yet he's getting a higher IRR, he's getting a higher yield. So what these guys are doing is pooling money, partnering up, working together. And I find that I am busiest right now on behalf of non-bank lender clients. And so for your investor audience, Ash, I would say, you know, do some investigating about who these non-bank lender clients are, the large ones. Some of them are publicly traded. Uh, I'm, people are going to explore this after after we get off our call today. Uh, we represent a, a significant number of them. And as an industry, they're in a bit of, uh, of a sweet spot right now, I would submit to you. And, and that's worthy of some thought.
2: So tell us more about those types of agents. Uh, the activity that they're engaged in uh, and a bit of an overview of what their uh, sort of overall position is in the lending industry.
1: Yeah. So, you know, historically, they've been challenged. They have to compete with the banks. The banks have a cost of funds of nil, right? People deposit trillions of dollars Uh, the banks have paid virtually no interest on that money for many, many years now. And so the bank has no cost of funds and it lends it to businesses. And so it is the most aggressive and first, uh, a resource, uh, to a company that wants to borrow money. But these alternative lenders right now have a, a greater ability to ensure executing and delivering on their commitments to lend. People trust that they will get to the finish line with these alternative lenders, almost more comfortably in the current environment. Uh, then they have that feeling with respect to to many uh, uh, traditional financial institutions. So are they paying a little more interest? Yes, they are. But you know, 150 bips isn't the game changer when interest rates are quite high anyway. Right. And So there's a migration to these alternative lenders. The expectation also is that as business environments change and evolve, they're going to have a greater ability to ask these alternative lenders to to work with them, if you will, um, then then, um, they'll be able to do so with a traditional bank in many cases. Well, and explain
2: for people who may not know who these alternative lenders are and what those facilities are and how they're structured.
1: Okay, so the alternative lenders, some of them are hedge funds, some of them are non-bank commercial finance companies. Some of them are factors, some of them are, are supply chain businesses, They are providers of loans and other types of financial accommodation that are privately held or publicly held, but are not regulated financial institutions. And that's the real touchstone. Okay. If you're a bank, you have the Fed get grading your health. You have the OCC evaluate the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency regularly evaluating um, the, the quality and stability of your portfolio. So you've got regulators looking over your shoulder all the time. So what you can do is terribly circumspect and the private finance enterprise is, is firmly positioned to be opportunistic. It answers to no one, but itself and its own investors. So these guys are really poised to move on a dime, to move with the marketplace, to seize opportunity. And and to be creative uh, and aggressive, albeit a little less aggressive now, because it's a safer lending environment for every lender, they can demand more of, of prospective borrowers.
0: We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
2: I think our listeners and viewers can understand why I was so eager to have you on the show. We talk about the broader macroeconomic conditions, and what you're giving us here is kind of the microeconomic connection to how these agents in the system function, why they do what they do in rates in rising rate environments, specifically if we talk about what's happening right now. And I think it's so important for people to understand the internal dynamics of the system. You know, one of the things that I think confuses a lot of people who aren't uh, in the debt space is there's kind of a dizzying array of options here uh, from bonds and fixed income, leveraged loans, private credit. Talk about the big buckets of lending, how you think about them, how you classify them and what role they play uh, in the credit system.
1: Yeah, they're, they're all closely interrelated. There's, it's it's like a boat on the ocean. There's shifts between and among them all the time. It's it's only a special company that's in a position to, to, to issue bonds to the public. A smaller company that needs a 75 or $100 million working capital credit facility it needs to go to a traditional lender or a non-traditional lender and borrow money. And that's really my sweet spot. People borrowing between 15 or $20 million and $2 billion. That's the world I live in, both with traditional lending institutions, uh, and, and the non-traditional uh, private lends- lending institutions. That's my sweet spot. And by, by, by focusing you and your listeners, on that segment of the lending market, uh, what's interesting is you know we we can we can take something other than a monolithic view of lending. It's it's very easy to sort of kick back and say, hey, lending is tight, uh, money's expensive. That must be bad for businesses. Probably not great for the economy. Okay, but th- there's no value in that. Let's right. let's right. let's focus. You know, I, th- I think if if we focus on a couple of industries for example, and think about a couple of industries and how does the lending environment impact them, that might be particularly illustrative. Will you indulge me with that?
2: Yeah, let's take a look at that. And I just want to say to point out the other point that you made there, which is such an important one. Uh, When people talk about the uh, corporate uh, bond market, for example, as you point out, it's a very small tranche of the most elite companies that have the ability uh, to raise funds on that market. You know, Microsoft and Google can issue debt.
1: That's right. Public public debt is for the Fortune 100, the Fortune 250. Day-to-day businesses, even very substantial businesses, businesses that are treading water, businesses that are expanding a little bit, businesses that are hitting critical mass, businesses that may be enormous at some point, all of them need traditional borrowing, signing up for a credit facility with somebody. And, and that's that's the overwhelming sweet spot that I live in. Uh, and where most of the money moves around. Um, So let's
2: take a look at the industry by industry view. I know you've got some data prepared.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, let's think about uh, the retail industry, for example. People are interested in that. We all go to the mall or we don't, and and that has an impact on society. But the retail industry is one that I'm very close to, very familiar with. Um, And the reason I'm interested in it is that um, it's one of the the logical largest users of revolving working capital credit facilities. And, and you say, to yourself, why? Why retail? Well, let's think about it. The retailer has an enormous rent role, right? He's got to pay for stores all over the country. The retailer needs to expend a fortune every month on thousands of employees, salespeople, warehouse people, et cetera, et cetera. It needs to operate distribution centers. These are expensive to either buy and maintain or rent. Uh, it It needs to uh, uh, move its inventory around the country. it It has enormous challenges. And the retailer, in sharp contrast to the Googles and the Microsofts we talked about at the very beginning of our discussion today, those are the guys who don't steadily cash flow evenly throughout the year, right? there's There's Black Friday. Why do we call it Black Friday? Because those guys are in the red three quarters of the year or more. Okay. So how are they conducting their businesses? They're borrowing money three quarters of the year or more. So they are big users of revolving credit facilities. They always have been. Let's talk about what's happening in retail lending specifically. It'll tell us something about that industry and operators within that industry. We can distinguish some of them. And it'll also tell us something about banking. So the first thing to note is. There's been an enormous number of bankruptcies in recent months uh, in the retail industry. So everybody knows this. Who are the entities that have filed? You got Bed Bath & Beyond, Christmas Tree Shops, um, Rockport with those uh, squishy shoes for old men. You got uh, David's Bridal, Tuesday Morning, Party City. These come to mind readily, half a dozen very significant large companies. Now I'll ask you Ash and your viewers, do you notice anything that these entities have in common. Yeah, they're all
2: based on brick and mortar.
1: Well, uh, two things, you've hit one of them right on the button. So all of them are principally brick and mortar companies. And when I say they're principally brick and mortar, it's, it's, it's not a death sentence to be a brick and mortar company. There are experiential retailers that are doing wonderfully in this economy. But if there is not a suitable balance, between your brick and mortar presence and the expense and the labor and the cost associated with that on the one hand, and your e-commerce presence, you've got a problem. And the other characteristic that I want to add with respect to all six of these entities is these are all non-luxury, non-designer, non-upmarket businesses. So let's take a look. I have a slide. Um, and you may or may not have uh, flashed it already. I've got two slides, actually. One reflects the fact that e-commerce business relative to brick and mortar business is obviously ascending and there it is, and, and it's, it's precipitous and significant, and it's going to continue. The The other slide demonstrates the other piece of this puzzle as it relates to the entities that I, I I listed out that are filed for bankruptcy, and the the uh, retail market generally, and that slide shows you that more and more a greater and greater proportion of consumer dollars is is going to the LVMH Moet Hennessy type companies of the world. So you know obviously there's there's inelasticity of demand among by the rich, and they will continue to buy. Expensive goods and services, uh, regardless of the economy we're in. And so, what does this mean for for retail? It means that the, if you're in the if you're in the good group, you do a lot of e-commerce. You have a lot of fine experiential uh, uh, characteristics associated with your retail business. You're on the high end of the market. You're sort of a luxury brand. You're somebody. <coughs> excuse me. You're somebody who can do very well with lenders. Lenders are willing to lend to you. You're going to generate plenty of, uh, of, of uh, working capital, and you're going to continue to borrow on pretty good terms. If you're in the other group, you're going to struggle worse in this current tight credit environment than you were even doing, uh, in, in prior periods. Um, so that's, that's notable. So so let's talk about the breakdown
2: here. Uh, Again, the menu of uh, credit uh, options uh, between uh, traditional lending. Obviously, we've talked a little bit about this revolving lines of credit with traditional financial institutions, banks, uh, and then the non-traditional piece. What are the major buckets on the non-traditional side? I know one of the things that I'm eager to talk to you about because I don't know a whole heck of a lot about it, but I know as an asset class, it's becoming incredibly more important uh, with the passage of every month. Is the private credit markets?
1: Yes. So the private credit markets, now there's, there's an interesting interrelationship between the ascent of the private credit markets and the ascent of a particular type of private lending that I find myself doing, uh, at greater and greater volume. And that is something I'll call lender finance. So I doubt your audience is familiar with this. This is a, a very esoteric niche of the lending market, but I'll simplify it. Lender finance is basically providing a warehouse credit line to a borrower that is itself a lender. So, okay, let's let's slow that down. So suppose, for example, a hedge fund raises a billion dollars and it says, I'm going to use these billion dollars in a platform that I'm going to establish, which is going to be a lender, which is going to compete with the banks, it's going to lend uh, uh, to businesses. So I'm going to run a lender finance business. So what happens is um, they are going to want to leverage the money they've raised so that they can increase their IRR. And they open up a warehouse line and thereby leverage the size of their facility. And what happens, and this is kind of nuanced, is that the The ultimate lender is sort of derivatively and secondarily secured by the collateral that is taken by its borrower in its own borrowers. And so it's a fairly complex debt stack, but this is a market that is increasing dramatically, lender finance, um, and, and, and the reason that that's happening is twofold. Um, more and more businesses are setting up to lend to lenders and more and more lenders who are not banks and who want to leverage their platform are growing like crazy at the moment in time when banks are making fewer loans and have more rigorous criteria attached to their loans.
2: Well, you just made an interesting point there, which is the rigorousness of the criteria that are attached to the loans. It sounds like what essentially is happening here is it's almost a kind of regulatory arbitrage where you have less regulated entities uh, who have greater flexibility in their ability to lend, uh, that don't have the, you know, alphabet soup of regulators scrutinizing them. And as a consequence, you see that flow of credit happening, uh, in the non-traditional lending. markets.
1: That's exactly the story. And so I have, I have bank clients whose employees call me all the time and say, I'd love to do this deal. Five years ago, this was right in our sweet spot. It looks great. I I can't do it. Why not? The box that we're consigned to by this alphabet soup of regulators is such right now that it it doesn't look secured in exactly the proper way. It it doesn't look like it's in exactly the sweet spot for us. It 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 runs afoul of the directive that says, We can only have so many borrowers in a particular industry, for example. And we already have too many borrowers engaged in this industry, notwithstanding that the industry in question may be the hottest and best place to make loans right now. So my my bank clients are constrained, and it's tricky for them. And let me tell you a very practical reality that goes along with this. So if you're a business development officer at a bank, your job is to go out and talk to CFOs and find loans to tell the guy, Hey, I see you have a credit line with X, Y, Z right now. Well, we here at ABC, we can give you a more flexible, uh, more favorable credit facility. Why don't you come over and move your borrowing activity over to us? They're their they're salesmen with, uh, uh, accounting and, and economics backgrounds. That's what they are. Right. Well, guess what? The best guys in that space, they make the best living possible for themselves when their institution is giving them the support and the flexibility to do a larger percentage of the transactions that they come in and present to a credit committee. What am I saying? The guys who are really good, they're moving over to private debt. Why? Because they can get paid. If they can't get the loans closed at the bank, they, they can't make the living that their expertise uh, uh, really merits for them. So it's very interesting.
2: Yeah, and obviously these are very bright, sophisticated individuals who are rational actors are going to go where the cash flow is.
1: Uh, Alan, I'm enjoying this
2: conversation immensely because typically I talk to economists uh, who look at these things in various sort of abstract ways, but to actually understand the microeconomic underpinning, why the agents do what the agents do uh, from someone who's actually in the room with them, I think is just fascinating. But I wanted to to give folks just a little bit of an idea talking about the macroeconomic side, about what some of the, the size of this market and its growth, because it is so important, I think, for people to understand understand the scale of this, what we're talking about here. So the private credit market in 2020 was $875 billion at the start of 2023 this year. $1.4 trillion. And it's predicted to essentially close to double $2.3 trillion in the next four years. By the end of 2027, Uh, I did my homework last night to kept from uh, myself from getting left in the dust in this conversation. Uh, And these uh, these, uh, this data is from JP, uh, excuse me, from Morgan Stanley. Uh, So obviously, folks can see rapidly, rapidly growing market.
1: Yeah, listen, we're, we're in an environment where technology change is everything, right? And the only way for businesses to keep pace, to stay at the front, to be agile, and and all businesses learned agility during the pandemic experience. The ones that were agile were successful, and the ones that were entrenched and less agile tended to be less successful. I'll tell you something interesting. The financial institutions that I represent, they now include an analysis category for the agility of management and the agility of the infrastructure of the business as part of their underwriting process. That was never considered previously. So so what does that mean, Lon? What exactly does that mean in practice? Okay. So suppose, for example, you're manufacturing something. Okay. If all your manufacturing happens at one plant, you're less agile than a guy who's got plants in four jurisdictions. Because there could be a quarantine in two out of four, but you've still got four running. Mm. Suppose, for example, that your manufacturing input is derived from one supplier only. You are less agile than a guy who can who can obtain that material input from mm. five or six different suppliers. Because your one supplier might be shut down in a regional pandemic. But the other, the guy who's got four or five suppliers, he's going to continue motoring along. So agility means that you've diversified the infrastructure of your business, number one, and also um, you may have an inherent agility in that your assembly lines, if you actually produce something physical, are are geared toward shifting to other product lines, uh, again, with agility, you know? It's like a wartime mode. The, Mm. the, The people who in World War II who, who were able to stop making, you know, shik razors and, and and start making, you know, canteens or something that needed to be sold to the armed forces? The, these guys made a fortune. You know, um, some of them were criticized for how well they did during wartime. Right. The same thing, some some of the COVID, some of the COVID success stories were criticized for how quickly uh, they were they were able to make, you know, safety gear when they previously made some consumer product uh, for which there was no demand.
2: Yeah, they were criticized for alleged uh, profiteering, et cetera, et cetera. One of the fascinating things about what you just said, Lon, is it represents a dramatic reversal. I spent, you know, before uh, journalism is my third career. My first career uh, was in IT uh, and uh, business process reengineering. Then I worked in banking, obviously, at at large banks for a long time uh, and now as a journalist. But what's interesting is I, I remember when I was a young guy in my 20s, Ah, uh, this idea of just-in-time inventory—that you had uh, the smallest possible inventory stack that you could possibly have—that you wanted to do the opposite of diversify your supply chain sources. You wanted to lower the cost to the greatest extent possible by, you know, going to only the cheapest supplier. Uh, it's so interesting because it's it's kind of the reverse of the uh, Nassim Taleb view of uh, of anti-fragility. We created almost by financial design. Ah, uh, the most highly fragile system, and then we saw what happened during the pandemic, which was it broke. We saw supply chains break. We saw distribution chains break. We saw uh, all kinds of problems in transportation, et cetera, et cetera. So it's so interesting to see that lenders are now favoring businesses that create anti-fragile uh, and therefore agility. I mean, it's just a really interesting sort of shift.
1: It, it was it was very revealing, and you know, uh, I've got another slide that feeds into what you just observed, Ash. You know, one of the interesting things is that the logistics and shipping companies, as we all know, they, they experienced remarkable growth during COVID. So they had tremendous success. But when, when markets normalized, take a look at, take a look at how dramatic this chart is, when markets normalized, they basically fell off a cliff and returned to their normal. So let me tell your viewers and listeners something interesting about lending that may seem obvious, but. Um, you know, investors like to get in when a company has struggled and it's about to improve. It's often overlooked that lenders like to do the same thing. People like to get the best possible deal. So if you're lending to a company that just got through hard times, the company's balance sheet doesn't look that great. The company can't put its best foot forward in going to the bank or other lender. So what does that mean? It's going to pay a lot for its money. It's going to be, it's going to be highly constrained in terms of its flexibility. The lender has the upper hand, but the lender is thinking I'm getting terrific terms, but I'm also aware that this business is just about to turn the corner. And so an appreciation of projections is something that informs underwriting and lending strategy by all lenders. And so while lenders were delighted to make loans to people who were in the shipping and logistics business prior to, and during COVID at the moment, they're declining businesses. And so they are not favored by lenders. They're struggling, Mm -hmm. uh, they're struggling to get borrowing on decent terms.
2: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating and almost counterintuitive the idea that when there's more potential risk, if you can project going forward, you basically can get the best of both worlds. You can have a higher credit worthy uh, entity that you're lending to while simultaneously being able to charge higher rates uh, and therefore generate greater fees for everyone involved.
1: And, and And that's the lender equivalent of the stock market customer who wants to buy low and sell high. It's exactly that. You try to yeah. minimize your exposure and maximize your return and the lenders do it. And I don't think people have a real appreciation uh, for how thoughtful they are in doing that. Some some are some are better than others. Uh, yeah,
2: it, it sort of reminds me when I was a young guy and talked to someone who worked uh, in the uh, consumer finance, which uh, was in the credit card business, and said, you know, what we call people who pay off their bill uh, at the end of the month, we call them deadbeats, right? Because you don't raise any money on you. It's kind of this kind of intuitive aspect. Correct, uh,
1: correct. That's, correct. that's the, the those guys are the zero IRR component of the business, great. and so you really don't like those guys very much. Um, I'll tell you another interesting example. And, you know, we talked about upmarket and downmarket retailers before. Um, here's, here's a corollary, almost the opposite example that um, feeds from the uh, COVID, post-COVID experience. So um, during the COVID era, anybody who was making a consumer good, toothpaste, toilet paper, we, we know the answer. People weren't just buying the stuff, they were stockpiling it, right? So these guys could, could borrow on virtually any terms that interested them. Um, I, I think there's a chart uh, that, that I have coming up in a moment that talks about the fact that um, uh, consumers were buying the household brands. They wanted Kleenex and Clorox and, and, and Crest toothpaste, and they were buying this stuff uh, in sufficient quantities that they could, they could store it in the basement, like the apocalypse was coming. Right. So now, why did that happen? You, you had scarcity or a perception of scarcity, and, and you also had the government printing money, handing people money and saying, Hey, you might want to stockpile this stuff. We're not sure how much of it is going to be around. So, the government was subsidizing it. You had an environment in which people were nervous. Obviously people were, were buying the stuff like, like hotcakes. Okay. Then what happens? Now we find ourselves in an inflationary environment. Things are really expensive. Gasoline's a fortune. Things are expensive in the grocery store. So while you, while you have a tremendous demand for LVMH, Moet, Hennessy, you know, branded handbags and shoes in the grocery store, guess what's going on? The exact opposite is happening. Suddenly the public has a tremendous appetite, no pun intended for house brands. What does that mean? Lenders, and I've spoken to several clients of mine, they are reluctant to lend to the company that is making its fancy name brand foodstuff product. And they are very eager to lend, for example, to the guy who makes the generic house brand product that you see sold under the, the Whole foods, you know, uh, Kirkland, uh, generic brand. So this is a bit
2: counterintuitive because it essentially seems as though you have this bifurcation, the two sides of the market here on the one side, uh, you have the uh, Louis Vuitton uh, view of the world where we've seen those retailers uh, do very well. And on the other sort of wing, you're talking about uh, folks who are uh, probably financially constrained, who are looking to find the best value for their dollar uh, going out and buying store brands.
1: That's right. And the difference of course, is that you may or may not need a handbag. You certainly don't need a $5,000 handbag, everyone needs nutrition. Groceries are an absolute necessity. So people are saving money on these necessities. As I said earlier, there's a complete inelasticity of demand at the ultra high end of markets. And, and, and that's why that's a, that's a diametrically opposed dynamic. The second example seems counterintuitive, but, but it's actually logical. Um, and I'm in the middle of doing a, a, a credit facility right now for one of my clients that's lending to a big Um, a house brand food manufacturer.
2: Yeah, maybe slightly depressing about what it says about uh, income distribution in our society, but an important point. Listen, let me just make one other point here, because I think it's important. Uh, People who are interested in this conversation, who find this intellectually stimulating, but trying to figure out how it applies to them, talking about private credit markets, one of the interesting things that we're seeing uh, right now is a series of retail-oriented funds uh, spinning up in June, I believe. Uh, BlackRock, obviously the, the largest asset manager in the United States, one of the largest in the world, uh, announced a fund for accredited investors to get exposure to private credit markets. So historically, uh, this has been something that's been, these, these, uh, f- these products have been purchased by institutional investors, by allocators, by pension funds, et cetera, et cetera, uh, all the usual suspects. But now essentially you have retail investors who are getting in on this space through uh, these funds. By places like BlackRock and Blackstone, obviously not investment advice, but important for people to understand why this is relevant, particularly as we've seen uh, the breakdown uh, of the 60-40 portfolio in a rising rate environment. So from an investment perspective, if you're a retail investor and you're listening to this, uh, this is why this is relevant in your life.
1: I think it's right. Um, There there is greater interest in having some segment of portfolios uh, reflect uh, lending opportunities, public and private debt, um, obviously, people have always looked at banks uh, as part of their portfolios, but there there are obviously listed hedge funds uh, in which people can invest, and they in turn, as Ash points out, are establishing new investment vehicles that are dedicated uh, to, to, to lending money. And, and the lending of money is a damn good business. Uh, it can be done on a secured basis, it can be done on an unsecured basis, um, there's different uh, structures, different risk and reward associated with different structures, um, but the lending of money is is a glorious business that's been going on since the beginning of time. Uh, people want a piece of that action. And I, I think Ash is right there when he says um, that, that that's something people should be focused on. The, the, the other takeaway, I think, from all of what we're talking about is that um, it, it's important in evaluating equity investments, in evaluating industries, in evaluating particular companies, to have something more sophisticated than a monolithic view of debt and and credit availability. It's too uh, too facile to say money, as we started out talking, money's expensive and hard to come by. It's important to think with greater granularity from whom might lending be available to the company I'm interested in? Where is the company I'm evaluating uh, uh, being perceived by prospective lenders? Um, where in the business cycle are they relative to the availability of liquidity at a price from various sources? So all of that needs to be considered in a much more nuanced and narrow way um, than by by generalizing about the state of the debt or equity or any other market.
2: Very well said. Uh, I was going to ask this question, but Steve, uh, one of our viewers has beat me to the punch. And the question is, what are the risks of private credit, loan?
1: Okay. It's interesting. So the risks of private credit will vary by the mandate of the particular private credit platform. So I know that sounds very vague and, and, but I'm going to, I'm going to dig in. So if you're investing in an enterprise that has established itself as for example, a secured asset-based lending platform. Well, this is what you'd be getting. You'd be investing in loans that are secured by 100% of the assets of the borrowers. So that's a nice thing. You'd be investing in loans where the advances that are made to the borrowers are merely a percentage of certain specified assets of the borrowers in question. So let's, let's drill down on that. Sorry to bore you with all this detail, Steve. So if if you've invested in an asset-based lending portfolio, you put in, you put in a million bucks, they're lending to companies where they do a loan, they get a lien in all the assets of the company, they're lending against certain assets of the company only, perhaps inventory and accounts receivable. They're not advancing 100% of the value of the inventory or the accounts receivable. Maybe they're advancing 80%. So let's roll back and get a broader vision. The loan in question is dramatically what I would call over-secured. There's vastly more collateral than there ever is an outstanding debt obligation. Why is that important? because the likelihood that the loan doesn't get repaid is literally infinitesimal. And as somebody who's been in this market for forever, I can tell you that the only situations in which those loans fail tend to be outright fraud. And so these investments are pretty darn secure. Now, So,
2: so, so Lon, talk talk to us a little bit about the the security interest and the priority of the creditors uh, in the event that something goes wrong. Uh, How does that structure break down? You talked about uh, securing things by uh, things like um, accounts receivable. Uh, So these are things that are cash assets. uh, And therefore, if you're lending at a, at some factor of those, uh, it's presumably relatively secure in most cases, obviously not investment advice, but just to try and understand the broader picture of the risk profile.
1: Yes. So when you, when you decide you're going to lend money to a business, you can do it in any number of ways. If you're lending to General Motors, they can walk in and say, hey, you know, I'd like a billion dollars. And the bank shakes its hand and says, okay, here's a billion dollars. I'd like it back in two years with interest. It takes a lien in absolutely no assets of General Motors. It probably negotiates a series of financial covenants with General Motors so that if its performance were to begin to, to deteriorate, there would be an early warning system that would let the lender, or in that case, syndicate of lenders inevitably, getting back to something else we talked about, let them get to the table with General Motors early enough to work the problem through. Now with the non-General Motors, like we're talking about, taking a lien in all assets is is a legal specialty. It's, It's one of my specialties. Those assets could be domestic or international. They're often international. And keep in mind, they include all manner of things that are rarely loaned against. So for example, uh, the lender has a security interest in the trademark, the name of the business. You've probably seen that the Sharper Image store doesn't exist anymore. We all used to go go to the the mall, sit sit in the uh, Sharper Image vibrating chair, say, wow, this is really nice. I used to joke to people that they don't really have much of a business model, they should charge people a dollar to sit in the vibrating chair. They would make more money because nobody ever really walked out of there with anything. Yeah, they were that like, was, like, four, like grand four grand in the nineties. <laughs> right? It was like unbelievable. Well, the sharper image name is still around because in connection with the liquidation of the business, and by the way, I don't think any lender ever got hurt lending to them. In addition to selling off the fancy radios and the vibrating chairs, they sold the sharper image name to some private equity firm that licensed the sharper image name out to all sorts of makers who are providing little little things that you can buy online through Amazon. Chargers, earphones, this and that. Um, There's a little secondary value associated with sharper image. People say, oh, it's sharper image, must be pretty good. It's made in China like every other piece of technology. But um, the sharper image name can generate revenue. So in, in my example, you've got lots of what the industry calls boot collateral. It's kind of British, it's like it's in the trunk, it's in the boot, it's extra collateral. It's not stuff we're advancing against. It's not the accounts receivable and the inventory, the quick assets, the stuff that cycles through very quickly and pays down the loan very rapidly in a deterioration. It's extra collateral, things like real property or machinery and equipment, stuff that I can liquidate if after 60, 90, 120 days, collecting out the sale of the inventory, getting the accounts receivable repaid, I still come up a little short for my my lender client. Well, now I go foreclose on some of that other stuff, sell that at market and make them whole. So investing in completely secured loans is a very, is a very good investment. If it's managed well by people who know how to underwrite them and know how to manage the credit facilities, and obviously you have to trust the business people you're dealing with, their business acumen, their sophistication, the kind of counsel they engage, the kind of companies they, they, uh, uh, lend to, uh, and, and the kind of diligence they undertake.
2: let me ask Uh, you this. The differences uh, and similarities between leveraged loans and private credit. Uh, give us a little bit of a sense of those two terms because we hear them obviously with increasing frequency in this environment.
1: Well, you know, uh, the left the leveraged loan universe uh, it, it really, really th- it accounts for the the upper market segment of the money center bank type lending. Le- the left thin we talk about is. You know, it, it, it's a chemical company. It's a petroleum company. A syndicate of banks are are lending two billion dollars. They go out and they they share the risk. That that's the LibFin market. They they sell it down, and that's a tremendous market. The, the The private debt market is everything, packaged and sold or not. That is that is undertaken by private lenders up and down the debt stack. And as I said, the the private lender they might be competing with the bank. Uh, with their own private syndicate to lend a billion dollars. Or they might be lending, you know, $3 million to to lubricate the wheels with respect to uh, supply chain activity, Uh, factoring the receivables uh, of of a moderately sized business so that its cash flow is improved and enhanced. Um, So there's a tremendous array of of credit products and activities um, that are available up and down the debt stack. And that, and that's the interesting thing to look at when, when looking at the marketplace, people often completely overlook the, the middle market and the lower middle market where a tremendous volume of lending uh, takes place.
2: We get a new question in uh, this one from uh, Ralph. Uh, it's always a sophisticated question from Ralph Humphrey. And the question is, what does Lon think of these NAV loans, net asset value loans, uh, private equity firms are getting?
1: You know, I'm not going to opine on that, Ralph. I hate to demur and And it is a sophisticated question, but it's not a space in which I live. And you know, I've told people many times, uh, a, a bad lawyer is one who'll give you advice on any question you ask him, And a good lawyer is the one who will only advise you about things he knows about. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to tell you that's not in my sweet spot.
2: <laughs> uh, let me ask you this. One of the things i was I was doing a little research last night on private credit markets because it's as we talked about, it's such an incredibly rapidly growing space. Uh, One of the things that I thought was interesting is that it seems that many of these loans uh, in the private credit space are held to maturity uh, rather than sold or syndicated. Uh, Is that something that you have a sense of? And and what are the drivers behind that type of activity?
1: Well, I I think you're absolutely right. They're largely held to maturity. They're largely three-year loans. I would say the market is such that almost every line I close is for three years. There were some points uh, throughout my career where four years was more common, but I think three years is the the right window right about now. So why are they held? They're held because in the underwriting process, um, projections anticipate that they will perform and and pay good value uh, throughout the term. Um, in, In many cases, the borrowers have entered into the credit facility on the basis of a relationship with particular bankers or a consortium of bankers. Uh, They want to uh, have a sense that that relationship is likely to to maintain uh, itself and to be preserved in place for a period of years. The CFO wants to work with the same relationship manager and and, and loan officer at the bank um, or other other lending institution. And so, uh, really, the selling of these loans, um, the the, the ones I'm talking about for the most part, uh, is is not the primary goal. Yes, there are businesses that package and sell them immediately, but for the most part, um, they're held and managed. And and the other thing to keep in mind is uh, uh, some of these lenders, especially the banks, and this applies uniquely to the banks, they may be uh, in a position to generate revenue from cross-selling opportunities that non-bank lenders uh, cannot make available. What do I mean by that? If I'm in a three-year relationship with a borrower as a bank, I may be able to sell them, uh, credit swaps. I may be, may be able to sell them commodity hedges. Uh, I may be able to, uh, issue a private uh, credit card for them. I, I may be able to, uh, attend to all their cash management. I can earn fees doing a lot of other opening letters of credit. Um, so I can earn a lot of fees in addition to the interest on my loans per se. And so, cementing and broadening the relationship represents an economic opportunity.
2: Interesting. Uh, Lon, this has been a spectacularly interesting conversation to me. I've enjoyed this immensely. Uh, it's great to just have a, a view uh, from actually inside the room, from someone who's advising uh, these lenders uh, on these activities. We tend to look at things from a macroeconomic perspective. It's so helpful to have someone who can bring the view from inside the room. I know our uh, viewers and our listeners are enjoying this immensely. I can see the comments in the live stream. Uh, terrific conversation. I hope you come back and join us again. Uh, before we go final thoughts, key takeaways that
1: you'd like to leave our audience with. Yeah. Again, I, I think I alluded to it earlier and, and my lesson for the group, and this is a savvy, sophisticated group, and that's why I'm delighted to be here. My lesson is don't think of the credit market as a singular thing. Consider the, the, the various slices of the debt stack, the various lenders, the various borrowers by industry and entity within the industry and and try to evaluate uh, an appropriate connecting of the dots when you consider a company, say to yourself, from whom might they borrow? Where do they stand from a a credit perspective relative to their competitors? Uh, The more you know about the credit market, the the, the more you know about the impact of the credit market on on, uh, their prospective borrowers and businesses uh, across the economy
2: perfect point to end on. Uh, so much more we could explore. Only one solution. We're going to have to have you back again to continue this conversation. Lon Singer, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, everyone. It's been a real pleasure. Ash, as they say, I'll see you around campus.
2: <laughs> see you around campus, Lon. Have a good weekend, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>
0: Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KCCA ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KCCA forward slash